he came to Jesus at night. It's a haunting phrase, haunting text, very much a Lenten text. And I thank you for being with me on this Lenten journey here on the Zeitcast. Hope this will lead you to some places that are deeper as need be, to some places that are darker as need be. As always, if you like, subscribe, comment, support us on Patreon. Any of that means so much. Thanks for those of you who are able to support in any way. But really, however you get here, whatever you do, don't do. This feels like such a universal message, and I just hope it connects to where you are. As we go further into the wilderness, further on this path of descent that may yet open the possibility of some very new life. Let's go. Chaplain Jonathan Martin, to make sense of this whole Nicodemus thing. Thank you, my friend. Good morning. Would you pray with me just one more time, just for a moment? One more time to pause, to breathe, and specifically just ask you, God, now by your spirit. Would you open us up? Would you open the scriptures up that we might find ourselves, our lives, our own story, Within this story, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So, he came to Jesus at night. And he came to Jesus at night. I asked Joel about this the other night, as we often talk about such things. Hey, man, what do you think is going on with Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night? Because um, ever since early in the Christian tradition, we have a fair amount of not indirect Nicodemus slander. Um, because, of course, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And since we read the Pharisees as supervillains, then a lot of times what I've heard about this story, and again, it goes back long ways. Nicodemus, because he was Pharisee, was so afraid of being seen by his friends. Calvin goes so far as to suggest that he was only enamored because of Jesus' high reputation. So he just uh, he, he basically just wanted to be famous. Now, of course, none of this is in the text in the same way that in the next chapter with the woman at the well never suggests that she was promiscuous. How many times have I heard that sermon? Uh, that's just a quick aside slash spoiler alert. In this time in history, you know, women don't initiate divorces. So when women's women's been divorced five times, it's not a way of saying that she doesn't have sexual ethics. But that's a story gets told. And the story gets told about Nicodemus is that he comes to Jesus at night because he's attempting to hide, because he's so terribly afraid. But the text doesn't suggest this, just this phrase. He came to Jesus at night. What does it mean to come to Jesus at night? I'm convinced that the Lenten journey, the Lenten invitation, is one to come to Jesus at night. And what that means is as open to interpretation, is as ambiguous as the way any of us think about night. 
I mean, part of um, part of what I think when I think about Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night is that we have not only what I think is the second longest recorded conversation between Jesus and anybody in the New Testament after actually the woman at the well, but it's such an intimate conversation. I don't know about y'all, but I would say most of the very intimate conversations that have been formative in my life, most of those have not happened during the day. Is that fair to say? Like Usually our most intimate conversations don't happen during the day. Night could suggest that he, he comes to Jesus out of a sense of urgency. There's an urgency that compels Nicodemus to come to Jesus, uh, an immediacy that's to it. Um, nights when we ask the questions out loud that maybe by day we don't give ourselves permission to think about. Um, I did think about this week revisiting this text, and actually I really um, I have this in my mind a lot because I think most of us at some point in our lives have kind of been on both both ends of this. We've been the ones seeking out wisdom in a conversation like this, and maybe we've been the ones where someone else has come to us uh, having this kind of conversation. And my, my thought was, and I feel like it seems, you know, a little over the top to suggest that I know something that's not in the text, but I feel like I know how this conversation started. And you do too. If you've had these kind of conversations, you know, the thing that's not in the manuscript that absolutely was the start of this conversation was Nicodemus saying to Jesus, I know you're really, really busy, but y'all know that's how this conversation started. I, I know you are so busy as master rabbi, but this is the reason why my ears perk up and I never want to be too dismissive when somebody says to me, I know you're busy, but because I know the times I've, I've said that in the other direction, I know you're busy, but, and you know, sometimes it means something really significant is about to happen at any rate. There's nothing to suggest that Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night out of fear. It's an, it's an intimate conversation. It's a soulful conversation the way we're able to have at night. And it's a conversation that for me, so, and I don't think I'm just riffing here. I think it wonderfully models for us the way the Lenten journey looks. Nicodemus starts talking to Jesus the way we start any real conversation with God, any journey with God. I hadn't thought about that before this morning and hearing the, the text, I'd just been so focused on the gospel that the Genesis reading is God saying to Abraham, go, go and leave your country. As always in the story of scripture, it is a journey. The God of the Exodus is always on the move. Go, you got to start somewhere. And the only place you can start, well, I feel like I'm hitting a pocket right here, is to start where you are. So Nicodemus starts where he is, which is, I know you're a great rabbi. I know you've been sent from God. Now, he's not clear about much else. He's not clear about how any of this works, but he starts with where he is. And in the same spirit with Lent, we start with where we are. Here's where I am. Here's what I do know. But then as the conversation gets a little more awkward, the way that honest conversations get, we get a sense of the things that Nicodemus does not necessarily know. And that's part of what makes the conversation so profound is that Nicodemus is able to say very honestly to Jesus, here, here's, here are the things I do not get. How, how can this be exactly? How is it precisely that a person can be 
born a second time? How does that work? I hate to skip too far to the end, but um, I love so much that there's room in this conversation for Nicodemus doubt in the same way that I feel like Lent expressly gives us room for doubt, expressly encourages that kind of conversation to bring these things into the light. And I don't think it's incidental that by the end of John's gospel, even though it doesn't give us some whole account of Nicodemus being a professing believer per se, it's not accidental that at the end of John's gospel, we have Nicodemus coming to anoint Jesus after he's been killed. And if I can drop a footnote right here, see, that's what happens when people are given permission to ask their questions and have their doubts, is that they actually end up being the ones that stick around to the end. Whereas the people who are not given permission to ask their questions and not given permission to express their doubt, those are the ones often who don't end up sticking around to the end, not because they weren't meant to, but because this is what any authentic faith journey looks like. You ask these questions out loud, you get to have the conversation in open space. Well, that leads somewhere good. But when you have to push that down, it feels unnatural. When you feel like something's wrong with you, when you feel like there's something, uh, you know, mutant about your own faith in some way. Well, of course, a lot of those folks don't end up sticking around. You, you don't feel like there's room for your doubts within the story. Nicodemus understands early on that there are room for his questions within the story. Now, that's how I'm reading this. And I feel like this is important to say, because I read this as a beautiful exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus. I know not everybody's going to read it this way. Uh, I feel like whenever I preach from the Gospels, I talk this way a lot. And um, it's something maybe more broadly I'd love to do some work on. I know it's reading between the lines, but you know, y'all know I'm Pentecostal. So this is what we do is we pay attention to what's between the notes. No apologies for that. You, I, I pay a lot of attention to the tone of Jesus and how I read the tone of Jesus over time has really changed and makes all the difference in the world, I think, in how we understand these texts. Because, you know, let's just tell the truth. Nicodemus, by the way, who um, it's part of why I don't like the Nicodemus slander is he comes off so earnest, doesn't he? I mean, he's so sincere. Nicodemus is just, he's asking the deep questions of his soul. How do you not like Nicodemus here? Now, to be honest with you, though, while I've always had a deep love for Jesus, maybe because I've always heard that Jesus is tender and kind, he's a good shepherd and all that, when I would actually read the Gospels, before I had a shift in how I read some of this in tone, is it not fair to say that sometimes the way that Jesus responds to questions kind of sounds like a jerk? Is that fair to say? It just sounds like a jerk. I mean, it's one thing when he's like rebuking people who are being super self-righteous. But when somebody asks a sincere question and it feels like Jesus is off, like is giving some kind of rebuke to them. So we have in a text like this one. This moment where Jesus responds to Nicodemus and he says, are you a teacher in Israel? And yet you do not know these things. Now, how you read this in tone will change everything. Because if you think that Jesus is austere, if you think that Jesus is like, I don't know, some British school marm off a show that's super grumpy and 
frumpy and mean and just sort of like is agitated and is trying to show up Nicodemus, then you read it, you're going to read it one way. But on the other hand, if you read this and what you hear is something a little bit more like, you're the teacher? Why don't you tell me? If you read it the way, um, I said this in the first service, I don't think at all about, I don't think about football ever. Apologies to all the college football fans. I think about the NBA every day of my life for hours a day, including the off season. And one of the things that I love about inside the NBA and like uh, with Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal and Ernie Johnson and um, uh, Kenny Smith is like, there's such a locker room. You feel like you're inside the banter. And the rapport, like the tone changes everything in those conversations. Like if if Shaq says to Charles Barkley, the only way you're going to dunk a basketball now is if there's a Big Mac on top of it, you don't freak out because Charles Barkley's laughing. They're all laughing. It's like there there's a rapport that's there. And, and I feel like what happens in these gospel texts <laughs> is that we don't read, like we don't read those notes in between. There's a rapport. There's electricity that's happening here. I don't think that Nicodemus is actually hanging his head like, you know, Jesus is just showing him up. I think it's way more playful than that. I think this is what we consistently get in when Jesus is talking to people this way. There's a playfulness that's there. Can't believe in the year of our Lord, 2023, I'm still using Karate Kid examples. But since we have the Cobra Kai show, maybe it's still relevant. Think about how Mr. Miyagi talks to Daniel. Like, he's like, it only sounds mean until you get like to the thing. Like, he's trying to teach him something. Are, I thought, you're the teacher in Israel here. Why don't you tell me? He's not trying to embarrass him. In fact, Nicodemus is the first one in, in this, uh, in our gospel recorded history who's going to hear these, uh, this proclamation that we love so much. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's the first one who's going to hear the whole business about being born again. So does it really seem likely, does it, that he's being dunked on for his doubts or for ostensibly being a teacher, but he doesn't, uh, you don't really know it, do you? No, like he's, he's honored for coming to Jesus at night. He's honored for asking his questions out loud. He's honored for pushing back in all of this. Jesus does not respond to any of this with agitation. In fact, there's just invitation. That's all, that's all that we get here. Now, to move more quickly, this is where Jesus, of course, does give us this wonderful language of being born again. And since I am, and I get, I'll say again, I don't feel like I'm just riffing. I feel like, uh, I do believe the Holy Ghost is the DJ with lectionary texts. And I do try to pay attention to like the church, like, I, like I, as I really believe in these things, and I really believe that Lent is an invitation to go on a journey with God, like Abraham's uh, told to go. And I think we're getting a sense of that journey in the text. And this is what the shape of the Lenten journey looks like. We go into the wild, we go in the wilderness, we go with our doubts, we go with our questions, we go on this ambiguous journey that goes ultimately to death, goes ultimately to the cross, ultimately to resurrection, but first is a journey to, to death and like all that. I think there's something really happening here in Jesus' description of being born again that I'm, I'm hearing in, an, in another way right now. Uh, 
I don't mean to every time I preach to give more stories than you want to hear about my childhood, but I do think context is important for how we hear anybody's story. So you just have to keep this in mind, that the great drama of my life, historically, great drama, the thing I've thought about more than anything in the world, is whether or not I'm actually saved, okay? Because I come in a world where that's not only does every service end with an invitation to follow Jesus, to be saved in this way, but we also believed you could backslide and therefore could lose your salvation. So I might have just come down to the altar on Sunday night, of course, back in church on Wednesday night, but y'all, a lot can happen between Sunday night and Wednesday night. So which seems really hilarious now, as little as I knew about sinning then, found out some more later, didn't know a whole lot then. But I was just convinced, I was just convinced that between Sunday and Wednesday, it could, we could be in a revival between Sunday night and Monday night. I thought I had lost my salvation somehow with something. So I was, I, I, you know, evangelists would come through, they give these altar invitations, you know, they kept stats of like how many people get saved. And I'm telling you, I padded everybody's stats. I just pat everybody's stats. They're always like, <laughs> at least one person came to faith with every preacher who ever gave an invitation because I always came down crying. And then I give a testimony about how I feel like this would, this was the time where it really took. I mean, this is like the drama of my life. So if you want to know what progress and growth and grace looks like, I am pretty certain in the last seven days, I've not thought one time about whether or not I am really saved, but that is, that is great progress. I'm not, thank you. For, thank you for clapping. That's amazing that y'all clapped at that. It's a great church. It is true. I, I actually do not. I actually spend zero minutes thinking now about whether or not the status of my eternal salvation. I don't I'm not concerned about any of this anymore. I'm not I, I don't I'm I feel fine. But I will say this. When Jesus gives this language here about being born again, uh, and I, I referenced to Brian earlier because, you know, uh, and I, I feel like a good Methodist in this way. Now, I would like, I would want to be clear at this point, I believe so strongly in the sacrament of baptism. I feel very confident that baptism holds and you don't need to be baptized more than once. And I obviously don't believe anymore. One is drifting in and out of salvation, but I will want to contend for the idea that we need to be born again more than once. I don't the same thing as being saved, quotation marks. But to be born again? Well, that's what this whole journey is all about. Have to do it over and over again. Go, get up, leave your father's house. Well, I just did that last year. I know, it's been a while. And now we've gotten settled in again. And per usual, am, am I the only one? I've already forgotten what this pattern of death and resurrection looks like. I have already forgotten. I have already once again been lulled into thinking that things can continue to go on the way that it is and that I'm not going to have to let go and lose and surrender and yield for new life. I've, I've already got back into that way of thinking. So once again, I'm going to have to go back in the wilderness, walk that path of the cross, go that road of ashes, descent and grief. I got to do it all over again. And and we keep having to walk that road over and over again. Part of what I love about this is every time this happens, every time we walk this road, I, I do believe there is a way in which we're able to be born again. 
keep in mind the motif that runs all throughout John's gospel is about coming to see, coming awake. It's the way I like to put it, coming awake. Well, this happens all the time. And actually now, <laughs> in the same way that, uh, get just a footnote, the whole Nicodemus slander, like the fact that Nicodemus comes with honest questions and honest doubts and people could see that it's like, oh, Nicodemus, the coward. It's like, this is why you can't tell Christians anything. This is why you just can't tell Christians anything. Same, same way I feel about this whole business of being born again, like something this beautiful and this wonderful, like from wherever you are, you get to start over. The journey always gets to reboot. God's very job description is God is the one who makes all things new. And this keeps happening over and over and over again. And the fact that this turns into like a one-time experience that you have somewhere or a status to be gained or lost. Oh, how awful is that? I hope the last time I was born again wasn't 30 years ago. I'm, I'm gunning for it three or four times every week. If I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause how many opportunities do we have every day, every moment, certainly in a season like this to step back into this cycle where we get to become new all over again? So I think beyond this idea of just like being saved, there is this invitation to be born again. That does mean that whether or not you've been following Jesus historically, now you get to, do you hear that? You don't have to. You get to follow Jesus all over again. You get to go in the wilderness all over again. You get to follow Jesus the cross all over again. Resurrection, you get to be made new all over again. You get to still be somebody else. You get to experience something altogether new and altogether different. That's the invitation that we actually get in a text like this one. So I need to wind up, but I will, I'll land here. I'm thinking so much about the fact because there's so much happening in this text. Jesus gives the language of, um, and I'm skipping around a bit, but the movements of the text in this way, especially for Lent, just feel so clear somehow right now in terms of the invitation it offers us. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We know that this imagery comes from the exodus of the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. In the first service, I referenced this, but used a different quote. My good friend uh, Chris Green has written a new book, Being Transfigured, Lenten Homilies. And there's a lovely section here where he talks about the serpent being lifted up in this text. It's where Chris writes, following their lead, we may say then that Jesus is not only like the brazen serpent, lifted up in death so that death might be brought low. He is also like the biting serpents, striking us so we come alive, wounding us for our healing. The truth hurts, we say, and so it does, but it never harms. And I... I love that language so much because I know what I fear about this particular journey, the Lenten journey, because it does involve wilderness, because it does involve going to the cross. I'm always afraid of what it's going to bring up. Um, since now I get to be a dad to multiple teenage daughters, which is an amazing thing. Four kids, three teenage daughters. 
one of the conversations we have a lot, and I mean, I recognize, not like I don't recognize this in myself, not like all of our brains aren't being rewired by our technology, but one of the conversations we have a lot with them is, you know, seeing the fear of, of sitting still, the fear of not being able to check your phone. And I know how I get when I get in a certain, you know, constantly rechecking the email, looking for a ding, whatever, you know, the things that we do. And so it's, I just think it's so helpful to hear, yes, there is a way that when we go into this wildness, this wilderness, the serpent might bite, but does not harm. There are things that we may see that we may not want to see uh, about ourselves, about the world, things that we may be trying to avoid, but God does not harm us. Any way that we are wounded is always ultimately for our healing. It's not a thing to be avoided. It always only leads to wholeness and to life. It always only leads to integration, only leads to goodness. So to trust that, to trust that any of the wounds that comes out of this time will be temporary and only in a way that push us to a deeper, greater healing. There's nothing to be afraid of on this wilderness journey because the God who invites us on this journey is our healer. So this is a journey of healing, never a journey of, it's never about punishments, only a journey of healing. And that's, um, I am done, but that's really where I feel like landing it for this service is there's just this specific sense that the Lenten journey is supposed to be a journey of healing. And yeah, of course it's about the cross and all those things because the cross is about healing. And so, and so all the things that like we're putting off and like, Oh, well, that sounds terrible. That's going to be awful. And we grit our teeth and do everything we can to avoid when deep down intuitively we know that if we'll go all the way in, now it may get a little darker before it gets lighter. It might get more confusing before it gets more clear like it does for Nicodemus. But ultimately, we know that this is for our healing, that this is for our good. And there's no reason we have to be afraid. All the reasons in the world, if we're going to be afraid of something, to fear what it looks like to stay still, to stand still, to not move, to not take the risk of being born again, to not allow ourselves to be revealed and exposed in the way that this season does. Let's pray. God, I simply ask now that you would allow us, like Nicodemus, to go to press deeper into our own questions. And I just feel like pausing right there so that we could even allow our really individual, particular questions to come to the surface. God, I just don't understand this. I just don't understand why I don't understand the timing of um, and whether it's about something that we're going through or something around us, uh, somebody around us is going through or something in the text or more from the text of our lives. We just want to sit with those things for a moment and to bring them into the light of your presence and, and to follow you into the night, uh, to follow you into the wilderness. Help us not to be afraid of the places that you will lead us. Help us not to be afraid of the things that you will show us, knowing that wherever you lead, 
whatever you speak, however you move, that it is always and only for the healing of your children. So we trust that. And we trust that, as always, you are the one who makes all things new. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.